Listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussion of sexuality and castration. This episode also includes discussion of suicide. Please keep this in mind when deciding if, how, and when you'll listen. For resources on these topics, visit spotify.com resources. Heaven's Gate first made headlines in 1975. Within a matter of months, pretty much everyone had heard about the UFO cult and their spaceship to heaven. It seemed like a joke. Except people joined them. Hundreds, maybe even thousands, we'll never know for sure. And even more shocking, they'd all walked out of their lives to follow the group. One member sold off his house for $5. Another left behind a successful real estate business. Friends said that he had perhaps the finest family in town and that he was the last guy in the world you'd think would do a thing like this. Parents and spouses were frantic. Their loved ones had vanished and cut off all contact. It was so extreme, the public painted Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Lou Nettles as master manipulators who preyed on their followers. But all they'd really done to recruit people was pose a simple question. What are you willing to sacrifice in exchange for eternal life in heaven. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is our second episode in a special anniversary series on Heaven's Gate, presented by Cults. We're taking a deep dive into the so-called UFO cult to try to understand who they were, what they believed, and what caused their tragic end 25 years ago. Today, we're going to look at the followers of Heaven's Gate. What kind of person believed in Heaven's Gate? What was their day-to-day life like? What made some of them stay for more than 20 years? More importantly, how much control did Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Lunettles exercise over the group? Were they charismatic leaders or experts in mind control? We have all that coming up. Stay with us. Rumors of brainwashing dogged Heaven's Gate from its earliest days. When news of their mass suicide broke in March of 1997, it all but confirmed those suspicions. Clearly, the leaders of the group had infected their minds from day one, and what happened to them was the foregone conclusion to that. There are arguments both for and against mind control in Heaven's Gate, and how it all played out over their 23-year history. For now, we're going to focus on their recruitment methods, because that's where the accusations of brainwashing really started. Sociologists Robert Balch and David Taylor studied Heaven's Gate for seven weeks in the fall of 1975. They went undercover, posing as members, and their reporting highlights one of the biggest counterpoints to the brainwashing explanation, a lack of indoctrination. As we've seen in plenty of episodes on this show, Cults tend to follow a typical recruitment pattern. Potential targets are flooded with interactions by the group. They're brought to meetings and events, introduced to other members, overwhelmed with literature. It's a full-on display of why the group's beliefs are important, how much better their life would be if they joined, and it takes place over several days or weeks. But Heaven's Gate didn't do that. They didn't approach people directly. They posted flyers, and recruitment meetings only lasted an hour or so. They spent 15 to 20 minutes delivering their message, and then they opened the floor for questions. 
If people were interested in joining, they were invited to a follow-up meeting the next day and then had to make their own way to a buffer camp. And they didn't talk about what life would be like once people joined. Balch and Taylor wrote in their 1977 article, Since Applewhite and Nettles believed that everyone had to decide on the basis of the message alone, they often refused to answer practical questions, like what do you eat and where do you get your money? And because Heaven's Gate members moved so frequently, potential recruits had a week at most to make their decision. After that point, the group would be gone on to the next location. According to Balch and Taylor, most people joined after less than six hours contact with Heaven's Gate members. So there just wasn't enough time for what we'd think of as a typical cult indoctrination, at least not in their recruitment. Instead, the people who joined Heaven's Gate were instant converts. One follower explained, what Applewhite and Nettles had to say just felt right. My head told me their story didn't make sense, but I had a strong inner feeling that told me, hey, you've got to do this. That's exactly the kind of people Heaven's Gate wanted. They weren't here to convince anyone of anything. Instead, if someone was meant to join, they'd recognize the truth when they heard it. Just like how Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Lou Nettles recognized each other when they first met, unaware of their higher purpose. And now their followers would do the same. One member recalled, I knew I was linked to them in a way that I couldn't explain. It was such an intense experience. After the second meeting, I went outside and cried for joy. So, if they weren't brainwashed, why did so many people feel this instant connection to Heaven's Gate? In our last episode, we talked about the rise of the New Age movement and how that influenced Applewhite and Nettles' spiritual quest. Well, their followers were under that same influence. Most of them had tried other brands of enlightenment before Heaven's Gate. Journalist James Phelan reported, Almost all are seekers who have spent years, in the trite phrase, trying to find themselves. Many have tried Scientology, yoga, Zen, offbeat cults, hallucinogens, hypnosis, tarot cards, and astrology. Almost all believe in psychic phenomena. So with that context, we get a better understanding of the instant convert. For most of them, this wasn't the first time an alternative religion resonated with them. It was just the latest in a series of epiphanies. But even though they were all seekers, a lot of the recruits wouldn't fit our image of a stereotypical cult member. Sociologist Yanya Lalich cautions that people from all walks of life can find themselves in a cult if they're offered the right message. She explains in the documentary Heaven's Gate, The Cult of Cults, people who join cults are typically well-educated, often from very good families. They don't have prior psychological problems, because in reality, cults don't want lonely, strange, weird people. Cults want highly functioning individuals who can help run the cult. According to Robert Balch and David Taylor, the early members of Heaven's Gate ranged from 14 to 58 years old, though the majority were in their 20s. A good portion were college-educated. None of them felt particularly connected to the traditional way of American life, and most were apolitical, though some had been involved in activist movements. Many of them had sacrificed a lot to join the group, sold their homes, quit promising careers, and left their children behind. Those were the stories that got the most attention. But for others, especially the younger members, life on the road with Heaven's Gate wasn't such a huge adjustment. They'd spent time on communes, hitchhiking, living out of vans. 
One member, who later defected, said to Balch and Taylor, I gave up a lot to come on this trip, man. I gave up my record collection, a set of tools, my old lady. But it's not the first record collection I've given up, and it's not the first set of tools. And I've had eight old ladies. But no matter how they got there, what connected them all was the message. Across the board, followers felt like Applewhite and Nettles were offering them something different. As Yanyalalich puts it, no one else was promising the possibility of evolving beyond humanity, of leaving the Earth in a divine spaceship, of overcoming death. Which is pretty ironic, considering how many sources they borrowed from to create their message. But it spoke to people because it was familiar. It put the things you already believed to be true into a new, exciting context. If you saw UFOs in the sky, this was a chance to meet aliens. If you wanted to go to heaven, this was a way to physically get there. If you were looking for enlightenment, this was the ultimate transformation. And it wasn't just about having faith. It was backed by science. Applewhite and Nettles claimed to have access to advanced extraterrestrial techniques. Other gurus could only offer a spiritual transformation. But their process would activate a chemical change in your body, biologically transforming you into something more than human. And the individual nature of Heaven's Gate made early followers feel like they were in control of their development. Every experience, every emotion, every human thought was an opportunity to grow, to take another step towards the next level. But this is the challenge of the seeker. How do you know when you've reached the top of the mountain? Followers still needed Applewhite and Nettles as a North Star. They were the only ones who could tell if you were actually ready for the next level. However, as we said in the last episode, the leaders of Heaven's Gate weren't around much in the early days. At one point, they disappeared entirely. And during their first round of recruiting, there had been a sense of urgency to excite the group. The spaceship was coming any day now. But months passed, and they were all still here. Members started to defect, going off to seek elsewhere. Recruitment dwindled. It was a turning point for Heaven's Gate. In June of 1976, Applewhite and Nettles summoned all of their remaining followers to a campground in Wyoming. Those who remained were the truest believers. They'd weathered months of seeking, struggling, trying to change themselves. But their individual quests had only taken them so far. Applewhite and Nettles announced that they needed to take a firmer hand in their followers' transformations. No more of this laissez-faire approach. It was time for them to decide who was actually worthy of the next level. Coming up, Heaven's Gate moves to the classroom. Hi, I'm Christine Schiefer. And I'm M. Schultz. We're the hosts of Rituals, the new Spotify original from Parcast. If you've heard our podcast and that's what we drink, you know we are no strangers to true crime and the paranormal. We're also into the occult uh, to chat about, not to join, but you know, to, to learn and educate. <laughs> Every Monday on Rituals, we're journeying through mystifying stories of sorcery, alchemy, Satanism, and more, and trying to determine if the dark arts of the past impact us today. Like weather witches, who were they? Or the Fountain of Youth? Address, please. <laughs> Don't forget about werewolf trials, Em. Objection, Christine. Let's not give too much away. And instead, let's tell everyone to follow our new podcast, Rituals, free and only on Spotify. Now back to the story. 
Life inside Heaven's Gate changed dramatically after June of 1976. The mission was still the same, overcome your human nature. But 45-year-old Marshall Applewhite and 48-year-old Bonnie Lou Nettles built more structure, gave more explicit directions. Instead of traveling in families, they would all stay together now, working in what they called the classroom. The followers were the students, and Applewhite and Nettles would be their teachers. They both adopted the title of older member. This signified their authority in Heaven's Gate and their connection to the next level. If the spaceship came tomorrow, Applewhite and Nettles would be allowed to board, but their students still had a lot of work to do. It was time for them to prove their commitment. The rules were real now, and there were a lot more of them. They cracked down on the remaining sex and drug use. They introduced an exercise regimen and diet restrictions. According to sociologist Yanya Lalich, each student reported every 12 minutes to a central post at camp to see if Applewhite or Nettles needed something. The new structure was a turnoff for some people and they defected. Others were asked to leave if they weren't up to snuff. The classroom had started with about 80 to 100 students, but in a matter of months, that number was cut by almost half. In late 1976, 19 students were dismissed all at once. There are competing stories about why they were kicked out. They were either determined to be the weakest members of the group, holding back the rest of the class, or they didn't respect Applewhite and Nettles' authority enough. Either way, it had a powerful impact on the remaining members. The purge of the so-called Phoenix 19 became a cautionary tale a reminder that they were lucky to be part of the class and couldn't take it for granted. And cutting the fat only strengthened the movement. Sociologist Robert Balch explained in Heaven's Gate, The Cult of Cults, as people left, the energy inside the group would actually increase because everybody really wants to be there and you're getting rid of the people that have doubts. Eventually, the followers who remained, the most faithful, believed that they'd all been pre-selected by the next level to be part of the classroom. At some point, each of them had received a mental deposit of knowledge from above. That was why they'd immediately recognized Applewhite's message. One member compared the deposit to a tiny computer chip programmed with a sort of homing device to seek nourishment, which can only come from a member of the level above human. It meant that they were the elite, the chosen few. By joining the classroom, they were fulfilling their destiny, and if they chose to leave, they were forsaking it. So now we need to go back to the question of brainwashing, because from here on out, the rules and regulations for members of Heaven's Gate start to mimic what you'd find in other cults. For example, it's common for followers to take on a new name once they join a cult, to help distance themselves from what they left behind. Followers of Heaven's Gate were trying to leave their humanness behind. So, of course, that included their human names. Their next level names were six letters, all capitalized and ending in O-D-Y. Some followers just shortened their first names. Nora became N-R-R-O-D-Y or Norodi. Suri became S-R-R-O-D-Y or Surodi. Other names were based on personality or physical traits. T-L-L-O-D-Y or Talodi was the tallest person in the group. D-R-R-O-D-Y, or Dorody, had a durable spirit. In addition to new names, Applewhite and Nettles introduced a set of behavioral guidelines called the 17 Steps. 
They said this was how members of the next level behaved, so that's how their followers needed to act too, starting now. Rule number one, can you follow instructions without adding your own interpretation? Number 11, do you needlessly ask a question when the answer is obvious or a moment of silent observation would quickly reveal the answer? Number 13, has familiarity caused you to become so relaxed with your partners or others that your actions or words don't hold enough restraint? Scholar Benjamin Zeller summarized, it forbade such activities as inconsiderate conversation, clumsiness, procrastination, oversensitivity, rudeness, overfamiliarity, and defensiveness. To make sure they were living by the rules, Applewhite and Nettles held slippage meetings. Each member had to give an account of their behavior, with their check partner there to verify everything. Nothing was private. The 17 steps were presented as a path to growth, but in practice, it was pretty extreme. It forced members to constantly analyze every thought, word, and action. Am I doing this in a human way? Or how my older members would do it? It required nonstop vigilance and total self-control. They were expected to be perfect. And this process makes the arguments about brainwashing complicated. In effect, the 17 steps taught members that they couldn't trust their own minds. As one former member said in Heaven's Gate, The Cult of Cults, Applewhite and Nettles gave us the tools to brainwash ourselves, literally wash out our humanness from our brains. However, when Applewhite and Nettles presented the 17 steps, they gave everyone a choice. If you don't want to follow this, you shouldn't be part of the group. And some people did leave. But by that point, staying or leaving was about a lot more than following new rules. Their eternal life in heaven was on the line. And sociologist Yanya Lalich argues that this ultimatum created a culture of fear in Heaven's Gate. And because of that, no one was really thinking for themselves. None of them had to do what Applewhite and Nettles said. But if they didn't, they were risking their spot in the next level. So it was only an illusion of choice. But Benjamin Zeller challenges that assessment. First of all, the people who joined Heaven's Gate went in with their eyes open. Applewhite and Nettles were always upfront about how difficult it was to transform. It required a total sacrifice of self. Yes, they introduced more extreme rules and practices as time went on. But it was still in service of the original goal, entering the next level. And Zeller points out that this ultimatum exists within the confines of nearly every religious movement, especially those demanding adherence to a set of ethical or behavioral guidelines. For example, Catholic priests and nuns agree to be celibate, give up their familial attachments and possessions, and follow a strict lifestyle and moral code. And they do all that because they believe in getting into heaven, too. So if we're going to accuse heaven's gate of brainwashing, what does that mean for other organized religions? Instead, it's important to consider that the members agreed to everything Applewhite and Nettles asked because they really believed in reaching the next level, no matter what it took. So maybe it was faith, not brainwashing. We're going to revisit this debate later. But first, we need to look at how the group changed once they started following the 17 steps. The members of Heaven's Gate wanted their day-to-day -day lives to mimic their future in the next level, for example, Next Level members lived in crews on spaceships. They were each, quote, a cog in the wheel, each happily doing their assigned duty to serve the crew as a whole. 
They should never do anything that benefited only themselves, called attention to themselves, or made them appear to be better than other members. The crew took their orders from Applewhite and Nettles, who were Heaven's Gate's captain and admiral. The older members were the only ones who could be trusted to steer the ship, and their word was final. Every task had a set protocol to make sure things were done the same way every time, no matter who did it. There was a procedure for everything, literally. How to clean the house, wash the clothes, and cook meals. How to use the bathroom, how to shave, how much toothpaste to use. The procedures reinforced the attitude behind the 17 steps. Don't think like a human. Follow the rules of the next level. But they were also practical. One former member explained, they had to do with living within the budget of your supplies, like a scientific team. Members of the next level were genderless. That's how Heaven's Gate needed to appear. Women didn't wear makeup or jewelry. Men were clean-shaven. They controlled the pitch of their voice when they spoke. Too high was feminine, too low was masculine. They all had the same short haircut and wore uniforms. In later years, they wore matching jumpsuits inspired by Star Trek, but initially it was more of a unisex dress code. Everyone wore pants and long-sleeved Oxford shirts buttoned all the way to the top. They weren't supposed to draw attention to their bodies, so their clothes were all loose-fitting and dark-colored. Next Level members didn't have any digestive organs. They just absorbed energy from the sun. So to prepare for this, Heaven's Gate needed to break any kind of emotional attachment to food. They followed restrictive diets. Vegetarianism, fruitarianism, juice fasts, water fasts. It changed constantly. They started referring to food as fuel, eating as consumption, and the kitchen as the Nutri-Lab, next-level terminology. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner became first, second, and third experiment. The crew adopted new words for all kinds of things. Any dwelling was a craft, short for spacecraft. If you were sent to do something away from the crew, it was an out-of-craft task. Bedrooms in the craft were the rest chambers. Laundry rooms were fiber labs. They called their bodies vehicles and their brains computers. The vehicle's sexual organs were plumbing. Underwear was seat covers. Bras were slingshots. Sex was sensuality. Not that they talked about sex much. In a lot of ways, sex was the elephant in the room. From the very beginning, it was forbidden as a distraction. Intimacy was a human crutch. But as time went on, any kind of sexual thoughts were outlawed. Three things were labeled major offenses. Deceit, knowingly disobeying instructions, and, quote, permitting arousal in thought or in action. Applewhite warned, sex is the strongest drug. There's not a drug, there's not a morphine, or anything that is produced by chemicals or plants of this world, as strong as that drug. As we mentioned in the last episode, Marshall Applewhite struggled with his sexuality. One former member believed Marshall Applewhite didn't like his homosexuality, so he created a myth around that piece he didn't like. He came to a conclusion about his body that it was abhorrent. His spiritual quest was a way to avoid dealing with it. He couldn't worry about who he was attracted to. He had a higher purpose. Then he grafted that coping mechanism onto Heaven's Gate. All sensuality was forbidden. It wasn't even worth thinking about. Obviously, masturbation was against the rules. But some things, like nocturnal emissions, couldn't always be helped. Of course, Heaven's Gate had a protocol for this, too. 
specific washcloths were set aside in the bathrooms for men to use. But if you were seen using one, then everyone knew why. It was an admission of guilt. And eventually, if you needed a washcloth, you had to write your name down on a sign-out sheet. So then it was literally public knowledge. One member said there was so much shame around it, quote, it was enough for me to keep them in check. But even with all the protocols and public shaming, permanently tamping down their sensuality was almost impossible. According to one member, Applewhite would constantly try to find techniques that would eliminate that desire. And eventually, he found one. It was simple, really. They should all get castrations. Coming up, the members of Heaven's Gate prove their dedication. Now, back to the story. After they formed the classroom in the fall of 1976, the members of Heaven's Gate followed a monastic lifestyle. They took inspiration from monks and nuns, communal living, free from worldly attachments, dedication to a higher purpose, and, of course, celibacy. Followers weren't supposed to have any physical contact with each other. No hugging, no hand-holding. Those were signs of affection, and that was terribly human. They weren't even supposed to think about anything sexual. But you can't always control how your hormones make you feel. Even Marshall Applewhite, an older member, struggled with it. A few of the core members of the group acted as his helpers, almost like an inner circle. One of them, named Dan Cody, was openly gay before joining Heaven's Gate. Like everyone else, he'd adopted celibacy since then. Applewhite was also attracted to men. He suppressed those feelings, but that didn't mean his desires just went away. Sociologist Robert Balch talked about this dynamic in Heaven's Gate, the Cult of Cults. According to Balch, one day Applewhite confessed to Dan Cody, well, I hate to tell you this, but my vehicle is becoming attracted to your vehicle. He could no longer be one of Applewhite's helpers. The men had to distance themselves from each other. Dan Cody was devastated. He saw Applewhite as his messiah, and now he was pushing him away but he had to do what was necessary. At some point after this incident, the group discussed the option of voluntary castration to end the battle with sex once and for all. It's not clear who actually came up with this plan. According to one story, Applewhite came to the group and admitted that he'd had a nocturnal emission and he was now considering castration. He reasoned, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. He asked the group what they thought about it, and would any of them be interested in having the procedure too. But other former members told Yanya Lalich that it wasn't Applewhite's idea, that he'd been influenced by one of his more gung-ho followers named Sorodi, and that might be closer to the truth, because according to a former member named Sawyer, Sorodi was the first person to go under the knife, not Applewhite. Sawyer said he was present for Sorodi's castration because he was also interested in getting one. He shared his account in the documentary Heaven's Gate, The Cult of Cults. Perhaps to avoid any unnecessary attention from the outside world, they performed the operation in the craft. Another follower named Livodi had worked as a nurse before joining Heaven's Gate for a doctor that specialized in testicle removal, so she'd seen how it was done. They set up a sterile room, and Applewhite stuck a sign up over the door that said, Mexico. That way, if anyone official ever asked, 
they could honestly say that we went to Mexico to do it. Livodi finished the procedure, but then something went wrong. Sorodi's scrotum started to swell up and he moaned in pain. Applewhite was horrified. According to Sawyer, he said, I went too far to allow this to happen and you need to take me to the police. But of course they weren't going to do that. His followers were going to take care of this for him. Initially they were too scared to go to a hospital, but what if they called the cops? What if they came after Applewhite? But eventually, that was their only option. While the doctors helped Sorodi, Sawyer panicked. He went to a nearby pier and dropped the evidence, the testicles, into the water. Though looking back on it, Sawyer admitted that probably wasn't necessary. Sorodi survived and was released from the hospital without incident. Afterward, Applewhite refused to let anyone else have the procedure. It was too dangerous. However, at some point, the group found a real doctor who was willing to operate on them. Between seven and nine members of Heaven's Gate were castrated, including Applewhite. But after everything that had happened with Sorodi, Sawyer wasn't one of them. As outrageous as all this sounds, inside the group, it seemed like a reasonable, rational thing to do. Practical, just one more way to show their dedication to the next level. Sawyer had considered castration because he felt that it would prove that he was all the way in. You could argue that it's evidence of brainwashing. That eventually, the worldview of Heaven's Gate was so warped, members could be convinced of anything, even body modification, and they'd feel like it was their own choice. But there was a limit to Applewhite and Nettles' control, because several members left Heaven's Gate, even after more than a decade with the group. We mentioned Dan Cody earlier, who was part of Applewhite's inner circle. When he chose to leave them after 15 years, no one threatened him or browbeat him. According to journalist Laura Barcella, he was given a bus ticket home to Florida and a soothing word from Applewhite, who said he understood. Wayne and Suzanne Cook joined Heaven's Gate in 1975. They'd abandoned their 10-year-old daughter to be part of the group. The Cooks left and then rejoined Heaven's Gate three separate times over two decades. Sawyer also eventually left. He shared his experience in Heaven's Gate, the Cult of Cults. He said he was still a strong believer, happy to be in the class. He had a leadership position in Heaven's Gate and was respected by other students. But internally, he was struggling. And one day, Applewhite stopped him and confronted him. You've been distant. Sawyer confessed that for some time, he'd been completely consumed by sensuous thoughts so overwhelmed by desire that he'd been masturbating a lot. Applewhite wanted to help him. He told Sawyer that he could work through this. He still had a chance to reach the next level. But Sawyer kept giving in to his impulses. Eventually, after 18 years with the group, he decided he had to leave. Applewhite gave him some money, a plane ticket, and sent him on his way. Sawyer later said of his departure, I'm really kind of a pitiful person, but then again, you know, I'm not the judge of myself, and maybe I was doing the best I could. He added, I still believe in all the teachings, that if I continue to grow, that I will potentially pass through the Heaven's Gate. Benjamin Zeller argues that Heaven's Gate open-door policy is evidence of some free will within the group, that members wanted to be there, and if they ever reached the point where they didn't, they could choose to leave. 
He appreciates how extreme everything appears when you're on the outside looking in. But there's a lot of precedent for this kind of behavior in other religious groups. They're more acceptable to society because their beliefs are more mainstream. We understand why someone would devote their life to God, just not if he's an alien. And it's important to note that Heaven's Gate as a whole weathered crises of faith over the years. Applewhite and Nettles claimed the demonstration happened in the spring of 1976, so their ascension to the next level was supposed to be imminent. But it didn't happen for years, and still their members hung on. Multiple times, Applewhite and Nettles declared to the group, today is the day. They'd gotten word from the next level that the spaceship was coming tonight. Then the whole group would sit outside, staring up at the sky, waiting for nothing. After each of these failed predictions, Applewhite and Nettles said, we don't know what happened. We're as disappointed as you are. They said they wouldn't blame anyone for leaving. They'd understand. But most of the time, no one did. Instead, they cried and consoled each other, promised to work harder. It only made their resolve stronger. Then, in 1985, Heaven's Gate faced their toughest reckoning yet. Applewhite and Nettles taught that the next level was a physical place. Their followers are all going to board the spaceship and live forever as biologically transformed, eternal beings. One member explained in a recruitment meeting, you cannot die and get to heaven. This level is obtained only while you're alive and physically healthy. But in 1982, Bonnie Lou Nettles' body started to deteriorate. When she was 55, she developed cancer in one of her eyes. This shouldn't have been possible. Nettles was an older member, already transformed. Her eye was surgically removed and replaced with a prosthetic. Afterward, it wasn't mentioned. Nettles just brushed it under the rug and moved on. But she kept getting worse. By May of 1985, she was sick again. Really sick. When Nettles finally went to a doctor, she was diagnosed with cancer. It had spread to her liver. And it was past the point of treatment. Within a matter of weeks, Bonnie Lou Nettles died, and it plunged Heaven's Gate into a total crisis of faith. Thanks for tuning in to part two of our Heaven's Gate anniversary special, presented by Cults. We'll be back next week with part three of the story. We'll see how Heaven's Gate reacted to Bonnie Lou Nettles' death and how it opened the door for the group's final exit. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Cults was written by Abigail Cannon, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Brian Petrus. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Werewolves, witches, and Arthur Conan Doyle? Oh my! Sounds like fascinating topics to discuss on our new show, Rituals, Christine. You know what, Em? It sure does. Every Monday on Rituals, join us as we explore the evolution of spiritualism and the occult through stories, practices, and the impact on modern culture. 
If you've heard our podcast and that's why we drink, this is the perfect pairing for you. And if you haven't, go give us a try. Follow our Spotify original from Parcast, Rituals. Listen free only on Spotify.